To all of our listeners, please be advised that this episode contains depictions of sexual abuse and self-harm. Content may not be suitable for children and listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Welcome to Humanity Unlocked, where we know that listening to someone's story with an intent to gain insight is an important key in unlocking each person's humanity. Your host, Kimberly, is known for her profound curiosity in human behavior, giving her a long-standing reputation for being a deeply engaged and exceptional listener. Each one of us has a unique origin story that helps to explain the unfolding of the path we've traveled. When the story gets told, it provides a glimpse into the context and nuances that we, the listeners, may have otherwise never considered. Join Kimberly as she embarks on the journey of a lifetime to unlock and reveal the humanity of every person she meets. Here's Kimberly. Welcome back to Humanity Unlocked. I am your host, Kimberly Daya, and today our guest is a young woman who reached out to me personally asking to tell her story. Her name is Maddie. I met Maddie and her family back in 2016 at my daughter's cheer gym. She uh, was in middle school then, maybe around 13 years old, and truthfully, I had no idea what she was going through at that time. Maddie is 20 years old now, and she is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Her objective here today is to help parents who are listening spot the signs of abuse and give insight into how this occurs, why children don't speak up, and how to best support them when they do. Our resident therapist, Katira Ross, is with me in the studio today to help Maddie tell her story and educate those listening about this very pervasive topic and reveal the downstream effects when sexual trauma goes unrecognized and untreated. Today I'm asking listeners to consider putting yourselves into her shoes and suspend any judgment and assumptions you might have previously had on this issue and other issues that came as a result of enduring trauma at such a young age. Please help me in welcoming Maddie into the studio today. Welcome Maddie. Thank Welcome you. back Katira. Thank you. So we're gonna start by, um, Maddie, take us back to when this began. You were seven years old at the time. You were spending the night at your grandma's house with your cousins. And one of your cousins, a boy who is four years older than you, making him somewhere around 11 at the time, I guess, he approached you. Can you tell us uh, what happened that night? So it was like every other weekend, I went to my grandparents every weekend. And that weekend, we were told by my grandmother, to sleep in the same bed because just you and him just me and him um and i didn't think anything really of it because we were blood related Mm -hmm. so i thought it was like sleeping in the same bed as my parents um later that night we were told good night we got ready for bed and as soon as the door shut we were kind of tossing and turning couldn't fall asleep as young kids are, you know, mm. they don't want to go to bed right. when they're told. And he asked me to unbutton my shirt. And I didn't understand it at that time because my mother would check my body because I had eczema. So I didn't think much of it. And so I complied. And after he asked, and I did, uh, he asked me to take my pants off. And again, I didn't think anything of it. And... I didn't think that it was wrong, mm-hmm. which is now looking back, I'm like, wow. Yeah. I really wish that I knew that. And right. doctors have always told me that family is only allowed to look at my body um, 
when he was saying that he was meeting my parents, but in my head, I took it very literally and thought, my family. And so I just, I didn't think much of it. Mm-hmm. And, but after everything happened, after he like asked me to take my clothes off, um, he was trying to touch my body. And after it all happened, I felt just immediate shame. Right. That was the immediate feeling I felt. And I just kind of knew something was wrong, but I couldn't pinpoint it almost. Can I ask you, was there any, um, did he say anything? Like, was there any dialogue? He, yes. Um, He was aroused, like physically. And he told me, well, my mom says this happens when there's a girl in the bed. Okay. And that was kind of my first exposure to human anatomy and like what a boy's body does because I grew up in a household full of females and I only had my dad. So I was only used to women's bodies. Mm-hmm. And I, and then he asked me to touch it and I said no because, again, it's not a body that I'm used to. And so a seven-year-old is not going to, you know, want to do that, mm-hmm. especially if I have a different part than he does. And he kept pushing, and I kind of just brushed it off, said no, and I was like, oh, I'm tired, I want to go to bed, and it kind of, like, left it at that, and again, like, I just felt that immediate shame. You knew something wasn't right. I just knew, and it was almost like just immediate instinct to know something was wrong, but at such a young age, I had no idea what what was going on. Yeah. Wow. Well, before I go on, Katira, do you have any thoughts that you want to share on that? Um, no, and you know, again, too, with young children that age being sexually abused, I mean, they do comply because they don't know that it's wrong, and you know, they don't have the capacity to understand, you know, the function of a body, human body. So, yeah. you know, what she's saying is exact, exactly true. Um, you know, there's just again, too, um, there's a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex that's located behind the forehead, and so that's the last part of the brain that actually matures. Um, so the brain does not fully develop, you know, mature until the, until about like mid to late twenties. Um, so this would explain, you know, why those at a young age, such as Maddie, um, when she experienced her trauma may have not had realized or been aware that her, you know, her perpetrator was behaving inappropriately, Mm -hmm. um, or had the concept to know what she was, you know, being, that she was being taken advantage of. Yeah. Right. So there was an awareness that something wasn't right. You weren't sure. Exactly. You had the intuition to know yeah. something something wasn't right. Um, did you have a level of awareness that a boundary had been crossed? Was there And was there a moment that you considered um, telling your parents? Or what was going through your mind the next morning, let's say? The next morning, I kind of, I felt just a weird energy towards my cousin and just in the entire room itself. And that was solely based on my own feelings and just feeling... Uh, shameful and I was already a really anxious child um, and I've always suffered with anxiety so already my anxiety was heightened and I did not understand why it was in the next morning it's all I want all I remember is just wanting to go home that was all I wanted did he ever tell you not to tell anyone or there wasn't much of like don't tell anyone but it was kind of unsaid afterwards especially with how he was behaving the next day I could tell that he was almost glaring darts at me as like you better not say anything yeah Yeah. and I could feel it it almost felt like just like 
darts hitting the back of my head and I could just feel it. I can't even imagine being so young. So again, she was seven when it started. Um, Sorry, I'm just, I I was actually, there. there, I had a couple questions for you, but we've already actually covered them. Um, In your opinion, and in Katera's experience working with survivors of sexual abuse, and I know we're speaking a little more broadly, but I think it might be helpful. Um, how how does a perpetrator or an abuser convince a child to comply? I know there is typically a grooming process. So what what does that look like, Katera? Um, so you know, oftentimes abusers will often start to touch their victim in ways that appear like you know harmless. Um, they may hug them, wrestle around with them, tickle them. But then later, it just can kind of escalate to increasingly more sexual contact. Um, And that can include like massages, showering, sleeping in the same bed um, together, like Maddie had mentioned. Um, You know, and there's there's basically seven different stages um, in the grooming process. Mm -hmm. And some of those include, you know, identifying and targeting the victim. Um, So it kind of seems like in Maddie's case, her cousin did target her. Yeah. Um, you know, and any child or adolescent can be a potential victim, you know, it doesn't matter who, you know, who it could be. Um, and again, the perpetrator tries to gain trust and access um, to that person. Um, and the perpetrator plays a, a role in a child's life. And most of the time, like Maddie mentioned too, it's usually family members that are the perpetrators. Um, and that perpetrator tries, tries to isolate the child so that, you know, they don't go back and tell someone like this has happened. So try to kind of separate them and make sure they're in the same room with them oftentimes, um, away from other, you know, adults. Um, there's, there can, you know, be secrets that are kept between the perpetrator and the victim um, around the relationship. And um, and basically the perpetrator is like initiating the sexual, sexual contact very, in a very slow and devious, you know, way. Um, and their whole point is to control the relationship. Um, you know, because again, here he is not telling Maddie so much like, you know, don't tell anybody, but, you know, giving her the impression like you better not say anything just by his body, you know, reactions. Um, and so, you know, it's just very important to kind of, you know, know the seven stages of that. Um, and again, too, this is, you know, unless a parent really, you know, doesn't have the education around this, mm-hmm. it's really hard to know to look for these signs. But, you know, um, you know, there's, yeah. there's education out there for parents to be more aware. Well, like I said to you guys, um, I consider myself to be much more curious than most people about human behavior, and I wasn't aware of them. And I've raised, I mean, I have a 15-year-old daughter, and I, I mean, I, I was somewhat aware, but I, I didn't, I wouldn't have known specifically what to look for. Um, so I think it's important that everybody sort of heeds caution when, you know, when you are raising up, you know, young ones, because it, a lot of times it's not someone who you would think it's not some stranger down the street. It, a lot of times it's the, it's someone you know. Um, Maddie, how many? Just curious, like how many cousins were there? Um, at the at the grandparents. Yeah, like uh, were you of one of many cousins or? Like nineteen. We have a. Oh, okay. I okay. have a lot of cousins, and so it's really easy to get lost in the mix. A hundred percent. Especially mm-hmm. when. Uh, my nana is wanting all the grandkids over, mm-hmm. so it's very hard to even just keep an eye on everyone. And we were mainly told to go in independent play and just hang out with each other, so there wasn't a guardian really around for a lot of these experiences that I did go through because 
Yeah, you're all. It was there's assumption that you're all looking out for each other, yeah. and there's so many of you. Um, was there ever a point, and we're going to get to sort of how long this all lasted? Thing mm-hmm. was there ever a point that it took some convincing on his part to get you to go along with what he wanted, or yeah. were you sort? Did you go into sort of robot mode, or like how? It was a little bit of both. I let kind of my fight or flight kind of take over. Um, a lot of my instincts were shut down don't acknowledge but there were points where he would want to do it during the evening and I would flat out tell him no he'd say please and you know try to coerce me into saying yes and then ultimately it would turn into threatening me physically Mm -hmm. that Um, was gonna be my next question yeah how often um were you together with him like how often did you guys see each other very often um my grand both my grandparents um they really liked the idea of having a very close family and since my nana and my papa are divorced they typically do or they typically did fight over who gets who during the weekends and would try to be like the first one to ask so that the other one can't okay so i would see him quite often and there would be like weekends where i would stay from like friday till monday afternoon monday evening uh, especially in the in the summer when we didn't have school, so right. where else to go? Yeah. Um, well, as the abuse continued, I know you mentioned that your behavior started to change, that you were exhibiting a lot of anger at home, and by the time you were 13, you started engaging in self-harm. Uh, before we talk about how that all started, Katira, can you give us some insight on, into what self-harm is and how it manifests and why? Yeah, so so self-harm is a deliberate injury to oneself, which typically, you know, is a manifestation of a mental health condition. In this, you know, instance, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, A person engages in self-harm behavior usually as a way of dealing with very difficult feelings and emotions. Um, They can have painful memories or just overwhelming situations and experiences. Um, and there's just like a number of different factors that one would resort to, you know, engaging in self-harm behavior. Um, a couple ways that this inc- is included is, you know, if the if the if the person's you know having trouble expressing something that's hard to put into words, um, self-harm for them is a way to be able to do that. Um, they can take their these invisible thoughts that they have or their feelings and make it into something visible. Um, you know, they can change this emotional pain um, into physical pain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having, a, and again, I think this is probably the biggest factor is having a sense of being in control because, again, in Maddie's situation, she didn't have control of this. She was so young. Um, and it's, it's another way to escape traumatic memories. Um, you know, and, and again, having something in life that they can rely on because, again, sh- no one knows this is occurring. Right. So right. she has, she's finding this way of, you know, a very dangerous behavior, but for her, it's, it's something that she can rely on to do whenever she feels she can't deal with the pain of these emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the time, people use self harm as a way to punish themselves for their feelings and their experiences. Because again, a lot of the time, you know, with sexual abuse situations, the person feels it's their fault. You know, they did something wrong to make this happen or this person to cause this harm on them. Um, You know, a lot of the times also people um, that go through this or do self-harm, they want to feel numb. They want to disconnect from this. They don't, you know, want to deal with their thoughts or their feelings. Um, So they kind of, in a way, dissociate. And self-harm is a way to do that. 
um, you know, person can create a reason to physically care for themselves. So they look at that as a way to do that by self-harm. Um, and it's another way, too, of expressing suicidal thoughts and feelings without actually going through the whole steps of actually trying to take one's life. Yeah. So there's just multiple reasons why self-harm occurs. What's interesting is, and I want to get into Maddie's story about this, but what's interesting is I don't, is it a newer phenomenon? Because I don't ever recall growing up, although, you know, in the 80s and 90s, nobody talked about mental health. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that I didn't hear about it, but I hear a lot more about it now. Do you find as a therapist, I know you've got 20 plus years experience, do you hear about it more now? Oh, absolutely. I think it's more... I think it's more just there's an awareness of it now and I think I think people are more open to talking about it you know back back then you know several years ago no one ever talked about self-harm because again that's an embarrassing thing for someone to do and they don't want to admit they do this to themselves because a lot of shame a lot of guilt around it but you know things have changed a lot and I think people are just more open to talking about it um you know and this generation is much more open Mm -hmm. to discussing mental health issues which is a complete change from when I'm sure when you grew up too, Katera, we grew up around the same time. Um, Maddie, can you tell us how you were exposed to the idea initially to the, or to the idea of self-harm initially and what specifically attracted you to using this behavior as a coping mechanism? So in middle school, I did have friends who self-harmed as well. Um, And of course I would hear about it around school. It was more of It was definitely a huge deal at school and even hearing about it um, as one would they would want to help their friends and I would I'm a very empathetic person so when any of my friends were in pain or just needed someone to vent to I was normally that person to where they felt safe enough to talk to me and when one of my friends told me that they cut themselves that was kind of my first exposure and I never understood why they did it because they did explain that it was a way for them to feel their feelings in a physical way and I never understood it until I until I did it and it was it was almost like a drug it was like it was a really horrible way of coping but in my head I felt like it was the healthiest and when we talked yesterday you it's almost it's like addicting right like it's it's very addicting it's you when you're going through something so big at such a young age I feel like you have all of these emotions and you don't even understand those emotions and you're trying to make sense of it and so when you're finally able to make sense of it it becomes it becomes like a drug and you want to do it every time so that you can feel those feelings and feel it in a physical way instead of mentally where you're still trying to unsolve what those feelings mean yeah I mean and and like for the the parents or the adults listening who haven't had any experience with this um if you could liken it to like a drug or alcohol addiction or an eating disorder it's about um you know it is a way to cope in an unhealthy manner but is it is something you turn to to cope and in this day and age that's what I'm here I have a 21 year old son and a 15 year old daughter and it is very pervasive it's everywhere um and but people do not talk about it um at all i find it i I don't know how more people aren't talking about it because it i mean there are the people you least expect also too and i'm sure nobody i would have never expected you i mean i knew you back then i would have never known so um i did ask a question yesterday when we met with maddie i actually i asked both 
Maddie and Katira, when a child experiences sexual abuse, it seems to me that it's almost like a trigger. And when that trigger gets pulled, it can kind of disorient their development and set off a cascade of downstream effects such as self-harm, substance abuse, promiscuity, mental and physical illness. And I'm assuming it goes back to trauma and the way that trauma affects our capacity for coping. And unfortunately, Maddie's story falls right in line with this in terms of those downstream effects. But my question to you both yesterday was whether or not it's fair to say that someone in Maddie's shoes could be much more predisposed or susceptible to these issues and behaviors. In other words, does trauma have the power to throw one off the course they would have otherwise traveled, resulting in a proclivity for more self-destructive behaviors? Katira, can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely an increased risk for a person who has, you know, encountered a traumatic event um, to engage in self-destructive behaviors. You know, and some of the behaviors can include, you know, again, self-harming, um, resorting to abusing substances, and exhibiting sexualized behaviors. Um, but there can be another, fa- uh, you know, a number of factors that contribute also to someone becoming self-destructive. You know, it can be a way for that people can deal with, like, negative emotions, um, anxiety, um, self-doubt, shame, and, and just even a way to manage stress sometimes. Yeah. So when you were 16, there was a confrontation that ended in you exposing the abuse to your family. And this is the part where I hope every parent listening will take notes on how to react and protect your child. I am pretty certain there's no way to prepare for the news that your child has been a victim of sexual abuse. But having said that, despite your fear as a child of this getting you into trouble or the fear as you got older of not being believed or um, your parents reacted exactly as they should have and they protected you. Can you tell us about how they got the news and what their reaction was? Yeah, of course. Uh, So my older female cousin and I were arguing about something and it was a pretty heated argument too and I was upset and I ended up telling her that I was self-harming. And, of course, she was extremely uh, concerned for me because in that event when I told her, she she ended up telling me I've suffered through the same. And it was, and her telling my parents was not a way of like, oh, we got into this fight, so I'm just going to do this just to upset you. It was, and it took me a really long time to understand. It so was she's the one that told your parents. Okay. She told my parents about... Um, me self-harming and uh, she obviously did it in a way so that I could be protected and so I could be helped because she's gone through the same thing and she understands how hard it is to go through it alone and so after I ended up talking to her um, we did not end the argument on a good note either it was on a bad note but after we ended our argument she called my mom while she was at work and told her hey, something's wrong with Maddie, and told her that I was self-harming and that, you know, I clearly need help and that something is going on. And that day I was so upset, and I forget exactly why the argument started and why I was so upset, but I was so upset to the point where I was screaming so loud that I could not hear my mom come in through the house. And normally it's, it's an open floor plan, so you can hear everything. I was screaming so loud that I could not hear her, and it did not take me very long to realize that she was standing in my doorway and was watching me have a full-blown mental breakdown. And it was 
so unreal like because I would constantly hide my feelings away from my family so watching her see such raw emotions and see me in such pain it was almost difficult to even see her Mm -hmm. in my state and at that moment when she asked me like why am I doing this I just let it all out I felt like I could not hold it anymore and it bubbled to the point where I could not have that sitting on my chest and I had to tell her and she was so supportive and so loving and she hugged me and she just told me that everything's going to be okay and you know she didn't ask me questions all she wanted to do was give me a hug and that is the best thing any parent could do is just embrace your child because especially when they're going through such emotional distress they don't want to be bar- they don't want to be badgered with questions they want yeah you to hear mm-hmm. them and to feel the emotions just by hugging and i think is there and maybe Katera, you could speak to this too like and you could speak to having experienced mm-hmm. it i i've always heard that like you go at their pace kind of thing like you don't rush them in because you don't want to re-traumatize them exactly so a lot of times we as parents can be eager to be like well what happened tell me why tell me how tell me who you know and you know like i remember hearing about the elizabeth smart story in the girl in utah Mm -hmm. and it took her a long time to actually you know and they gave her that time and she says in her interviews now that that was the best thing for her because she was so fragile you know so parents i know we can be i mean i'm one of them i'm one of those parents who like needs to feel like i know everything now and want to protect your child but sometimes in our efforts to protect them we can almost hurt them which i think is that's where therapy is always a great tool which we'll talk about that too or especially because if you have if you have a parent trying to question the the victim um you have to understand too that the victim is still trying to process all of what has happened and probably has no responses to some of these questions that are being asked yeah so it it does take a significant period of time for them to be able to open up and talk about it yeah comfortably and even if you are going like I understand that the first response is to ask attendant questions, but even to the person who is emotionally fragile and in distress, especially at that period of time as you're trying to figure out what's going on, that can make them like feel like they're in trouble. Yeah. Especially if you're telling, if you're, you're not going to think about your tone while you're being told the worst news possible. You, you're, it's going to come out as angry because you're not angry at your child. You're angry at whoever hurt your kid. And to someone who is traumatized, that's going to make them feel like in that moment that they're in trouble, that, you know, you're not believing them, that you're not sympathizing with them or just trying to support them and tell them that everything's okay. And that could even create them to want to, how am I supposed to? Like, take back what they're saying. Like, it almost yeah. feels as if it's not a safe space to talk. Well, all, yeah, I was just going to ask you, too. Like, had, had she reacted differently, it may, would have, maybe would have made you clam up and say, okay, that's the last time I tell her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? if she had yeah. reacted any differently, I probably would have just completely shut down and just taken it back and said, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, Try to convince her that, you know, I made it up. I, Knowing myself, I would probably get so anxious to the point where I would just not want to talk about it whatsoever and brush it under the rug yeah I think that's a you know lesson to all of us parents um it's hard you know parenting is is really hard but you at the end of the day 
we have to always be thinking what's the healthiest response for for our children and um you know i'm learning here too and it's the whole reason for the podcast is to sort of understand how these things happen why they happen how best to respond to them um and this is a, one of the most important topics i think we're going to cover um so i do think it can be easy to assume uh that once you finally do tell your family and they believe you and the abuser is arrested which we can get into that too um and he admits he admits to it on tape you know and you get justice and the abuse is finally over it's so easy to assume that everyone lives, lives you know happily ever after but unfortunately that's typically not the case and victims will often spend years if not a lifetime in some instances picking up the pieces um, the news came out when you were 16 but by 17 you began abusing drugs and alcohol and engaged in a level of promiscuity that you maybe wouldn't have had you not had the experience you you'd had what what role does the abuse of drugs and alcohol in particular play when you've gone through what you've gone through it's actually a question for both of you um you know is it similar i should preface it is it similar to self-harm is it kind of another means of it's in a way it is because it's kind of like an escape escape from all these negative emotions and feelings that you just don't know how to process or deal with um so you know definitely people resort to using substances um you know, sexualized behavior um, because they just can't find the capacity to, to really just process through all of that. Um, so definitely. Do you feel like for you, it was it um, to escape into numb? It was more of being, when I was um, exhibiting behaviors of being hypersexual, it was more to take back my power and control over the situation especially since I had no control. I did not have any control over what was going on to me, even though it was my body. It almost felt as if I just had nothing. I had no power. I had no words. And being hypersexual and being the person that makes the first contact and is the person that makes it as their, um, their intention. Yeah. It was me taking back my power, and I felt powerful, and, you know, I felt good at first, but as soon as it was over, as soon as I would, like, leave, the immediate feeling of just guilt and shame, and I would talk down on myself and use negative words that, like, I would, that other people would even call women who are promiscuous, and it was hard because it's only myself. I was my own bully. And it's almost like you can't escape it. And, you know, when you're being bullied at school, well, not so much now, but, you know, back when Mm -hmm. I was in elementary school, we didn't have phones. We didn't have social media. So when you're being bullied at school, when when you go home, that is your break. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, I didn't have that break because I was with myself 24-7. And I was just constantly beating on myself. Yeah. And it was really hard because it would become a cycle. It would become, you know making my attention with a boy, doing the act, and then feeling good during the act. And then as soon as I leave, it was just a downfall. And it would just continue and continue and continue. This is why it's so important, I feel like, for um, listeners um, to always, we don't know what we don't know about someone. So when, and we're going to have a lot of guests like this. So when you see someone who is 
exhibiting behaviors that don't make any sense to you, you know, whether or not they've been suicidal or they were engaging in self-harm or they're abusing drugs and alcohol or they're hypersexual or, you know, whatever it is, eating disorder, um, there's usually a reason why, you know, underneath all of that, this, this is just the symptom of a bigger problem. And I think it's so easy to be like, oh my gosh, you know, she's such a this, or did you see her last night doing this? If we just stop for a second and ask ourselves, like, I wonder if a, is it, is this the behavior of someone who's uh, mentally, mentally healthy? Like there, there has to be something I think that would be compromising the reasoning, maybe not always some, I mean, live and let live, I guess, you know, everybody, you know, but when it's a child, I almost think that a lot of times, you know, chances are there's something that's compromised their reasoning skills. And what do you think about that, Katera? Um, No, I definitely do. And I think, um, you know, again, to kind of go back to promiscuity, um, I think many sexual abuse survivors often equate that with self-worth. Yeah. You know, the abuse becomes so normalized that the person tends to, like, stuff it away and just, like, attempts to just try to minimize it, you know, that it happened. Um, The abuse, you know, can convince the person that they have to be sexually active or desirable to have any self-worth. You know, sex in a way can become like this an escape for many survivors on several different levels. Um, The person, you know, can realize, well, they don't have to be emotionally attached um, instead, they can have this like satisfaction of being like found attractive, wanted, and worthwhile, while still trying to escape any controlling relationships or you know even the possibility of abandonment, which can remain like you know their ultimate escape for many years after yeah. the abuse has happened. Yeah. When uh, what age were you when I think we might have skipped over this part? What age were you when? Um, so so. It got reported when you were 16, right? Yes. The abuse. Let's go back to that for a second. He, um, the law enforcement, um, you got, law enforcement had you set up a call. Yes. Um, And then without him knowing that he was being Mm -hmm. recorded to get him to admit what he had done. And then at that point they were able to arrest him because he was an adult at this time. And it was ongoing. Um, and I don't even I don't even think I mentioned did I the, how long it went on for so it went on until you from age seven until fourteen yeah I was fourteen okay um, so it went on for seven years and um, they arrested him and did you did your parents so you were sixteen so did your did you get right into therapy or how uh, what did that look like after telling after telling your parents what sort of were the days and months that followed look like for you. Uh, so after I told my parents, it was around, it was after Christmas, and by the time everything, by the time that he was arrested, it was end of January, and right after that was when we started finding therapists that specialized in what my parents wanted was someone that specialized in what I was going through, and so that they could make sure that I get the right treatment that I needed, and at first it was hit or miss for sure and i was i definitely bargained with should i do it should i not what if i what if i have this what if i have that it's things like that and especially with how fragile my mental health was i was experiencing so much in such a small space 
and I did not want to be judged either. And when I found my therapist, Rachel, um, I immediately fell in love with her energy. She was so welcoming and so kind, and she kind of talked to me like on my level, and that was so nice because I was so afraid that I would feel looked down upon for what I went through and the fact that she would sit with me face to face and at eye contact and kind of tell me, you know, it's okay to talk about it. And she told me that it wasn't always going to be about, like therapy wasn't always going to be about what I went through. It's going to be trying to process the feelings after um, having to relive such, such traumatic events, trying to get justice. It, brought, it brings up a lot of feelings, and she was right there just listening, and it just made me feel a lot more safer. Did um, Were you able to get into therapy within that first year? Yes. Yeah, you were. And how long um, did the self-harm go on for? The self-harm went on up until I was about 18. I started when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, 18 was when I stopped and was actually serious about it and it felt really good because I was just about to go off to college and you know living in a completely different town with someone that's going to be living in the same room as me um, that was a really big goal was to be able to like go swimming with my college friends and not mm-hmm. have like cuts all over yeah. my body yeah. which it really meant so much to me because after the cuts healed and you know there's still scars but they're not as visible and they're not as prominent I finally felt beautiful within myself and that was a huge milestone because I struggled with my self-esteem for years I was a very timid person Mm -hmm. and for the longest time my parents had to order my food for me yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I would classify you when I met you, you know, when, okay. I, when I knew you, much, much more timid. Um, and I think just for if anybody has questions and is listening, you did tell us that when your parents did find out about the self-harm, they took away... They know, took away everything. Um, they wanted... they. I pretty much could not have my door shut or my bathroom door shut for the longest time mm-hmm. because... They wanted to make sure that I was not alone in the sense so that I can do that and yeah. so that they can hear me if like, I'm crying or if, you know, I'm panicking, they can hear me and be able to come and support me the way that I needed to, which a lot of the time is just embracing me and telling me that it's okay or even just sitting there in silence. Yeah. And it's like, I think that is probably the best way to respond to it because, again, self-harm is it's an addiction and when you're shameful of something that you do you're gonna feel like you're getting in trouble when someone finds out and so having my parents be so supportive and to validate my feelings and just to be there and embrace me it felt like I it felt like almost like I really wish I told sooner because if, if I had known that they were gonna react this way and that they were going to love me still and believe me and embrace me I would have told years ago yeah, going back to, um, you know, as you got older, and obviously as we get older, we, we gain an awareness of the level of um, how inappropriate something is, yeah. and you gain awareness of what sexual behavior is, and so then, you, so you are more aware. When that occurred, um, was there ever, I know you, you mentioned that he, at one point, he threatened violence or was or had to for, be more forceful because there was sort of a, a moment you know 
a period of time where you got fed up. Yeah, um, a lot of the times uh, he would threaten to hurt me, threaten to hurt my family. Um, There was one time where he took a pocket knife out and held it against my throat and told me, if I go to anyone, I'm going to slit your throat. And at this time, I was 12, almost 13. And again, that's a child will not know how to react to and that. And he's like 17 at that point. So. Yes, and he he was definitely a lot bigger than me. I have been, I for reference, for because people can't see you. You're tiny. Oh, I'm <laughs> tiny. I'm five foot one, and I, I'm now like 100 pounds. But back Bitty then, back then I was like 70, 80 pounds. So someone who is six foot something, a lot bigger than me, mm-hmm. it's terrifying. Yeah. And I froze and just did not know what to do. All, yeah. all I remember was was knowing that my sister was in the in the next room and I was like I just I need to make sure that I protect my sister before anything else yeah so it's like you kind of go through these different stages of the reasons why you know because a lot the one thing that I hear uh, most people say is if this was happening and we're talking broadly here if this Mm -hmm. was happening why didn't so-and-so say something or if it was happening she would have said something so it it must not have happened there's all these assumptions that we all know what we would have done if we were in those shoes but first thing when you're a child and you're that young you're you're afraid because you feel like you're gonna get in trouble oh my gosh i've done this thing i know it's bad i'm gonna want to tell anybody because i'm gonna get in trouble then you know once your safety is becomes threatened you're worried about your own physical safety and then you get worried for your sister and then I know another factor that came into the picture was you worrying about it wreaking havoc on the family and there being an issue with that I mean there were there's so many layers to why um, victims of sexual abuse don't speak up it's not so black and white and especially when it starts early because there ends up being new reasons why and we don't know when we're we're in those shoes especially if you're so young there's no way to predict how a parents going to respond no. you know and i was or how he's like, yeah like i said i was a very anxious child from the start um and it was very prevalent in to my parents too that i was extremely anxious um i would like work myself up about the littlest things and i had like the deepest phobias and fears um so already they knew that i was a very anxious child and with that anxiety at such a young age my mind was also very like my imagination was very creative and so with that i created my own fear of my family turning against me and breaking up my family and i knew that something like this even at such a young age i knew something like this would absolutely create a war almost yeah yeah so for those who are in your shoes or for parents with children uh, or teenagers who are listening, I want to give them some insight into the process of healing. I know your parents, you said, immediately sought counseling for you, which eventually, did you say that led to a diagnosis of PTSD? Is yes, that, right? that ended up with a diagnosis of PTSD, and then I found out that I have major depressive disorder, mm-hmm. um, which now I'm on medication for, and I'm able to manage, and we were able to um, get me on medication for my anxiety as well. Um, so since those two go hand in hand, we were able to tackle those together. Um, and being told what I that I had PTSD, I only knew it because of veterans, and I do come from a military family, so that is the only thing I could tell I could know what mm-hmm. it was about. And so being told that I have PTSD, it was like 
when especially when my therapist told me like what PTSD can look like I immediately resonated with everything that she was saying to me and being able to find the explanation as to how I was feeling and why I was feeling this way it felt almost freeing because I'm a very logical person and I always want the explanation I want the reason I want to know um, if I'm told no, I want to know why. Mm-hmm. So finally getting that explanation and that reasoning, it felt like a huge relief because I didn't know that it wasn't normal. I didn't know that other people went through it. So yeah. being told, no, that isn't normal, but we have methods and we have therapies and we have treatments to help you so that you can have better quality of life. It felt good. Yeah, I mean, living in a state of mental distress and anxiety all the time, that can kind of become one's normal. And you don't realize that there's actually another way to live where you don't have to have that, you know, that all-consuming anxiety um, day in and day out. Um, With the prevailing thoughts that sort of dictated your decision not to tell your parents, the first was, like we mentioned, that you thought you'd you'd be in trouble. And Mm -hmm. the second, you didn't think you'd be believed. Um, I want to circle back to that one. The third was you didn't want to disrupt and cause havoc within the extended family and you wanted to protect your sister. And this isn't the first time I've been told that these are some of the most common reasons victims choose not to speak up. Having said that, um, I want to talk about the warning signs for parents to look out for and also how to create an environment that feels safe um, for a child to tell someone if they've experienced this. The first thing you mentioned with respect to warning signs was um, anger, um, abnormal anger for you, and behavioral changes. When a parent sees a dramatic shift in their child's behavior, uh, what should they do? That that question's for both of you, and I really want to circle back to the whole not being believed thing, so mm-hmm. don't let me forget. So what should a parent do if they oh, see a shift okay. in behavior? Well, my parents, we've had extensive talks about this. They always knew something was wrong. Okay. They always knew because I was not their sweet little Madeline that they have always known and seeing especially that I got older it wasn't just typical teenage angsty behavior it was full-on blackout rage and coming from such someone who's so small Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's surprising it's a little off-putting almost and I would be set off by the littlest things too like uh, I remember my mom telling me to clean my room before I went over to my middle school boyfriend's house Mm -hmm. and I threw the huge like the biggest fit Mm -hmm. and I ended up throwing my phone at her and thankfully it did not hit her but I threw it with the intent of it hitting her and they've always known that something was wrong and they knew that there was anger coming from somewhere they just did not know what Mm -hmm. and when it comes to seeing that behavior it's always especially if you're seeing your child in that much emotional distress just I think the best thing I can say is like create that safe space, have talks with them, um, instill the boundaries early in life. Um, have talks with your children, even if they're if they're three, and obviously don't make it as explicit as you would if you if your child yeah, was older. Age appropriate. But tell your child that no one is allowed to look at their body unless it's mom and dad for a medical reason. Mm-hmm. For if something is wrong and you tell your parent and you tell your parents, hey, something like you know, tell your kid if something's not feeling right down there, please let us know. But also make sure to instill that boundary and um, let them know that if 
a family member kisses them or touches them or hugs them and they don't want that, they are allowed to say no. And unfortunately, I did not know that because, again, um, my parents wouldn't think to tell their child yeah. <laughs> you, you could say no. And yeah. so it, crea- it creates kind of that portal for children to be abused if you're not giving those boundaries early on in life and instilling them and even if like now you have kids and they're older or they're about to be like go into adolescence and they're about to hit puberty um even just just tell them their boundaries tell them the boundaries tell them what is okay and make make an example of what is acceptable behavior um and how to point out the abusive behavior and what the red flags are because again I had no idea, even when I was in middle school and things were still going on, I did not know really that it was abusive. Up until eighth grade was when um, we had health for science class, and that's what we had we had learned about sex. Um, and I kind of started to realize that's mm-hmm. not normal. Yeah. That what I am going through is not normal, and that's like kind of when I started to spiral out of control with my behavior and my anger towards my mom because yeah. I was aware that this was not okay. And then it went to, it shifted blame towards, well, why doesn't my mom know? Why isn't my mom seeing the signs? Mm-hmm. I'm crying out for help. Like, where is it? And my mom still kicks herself to this day that she didn't see the warning signs and that she didn't know how to approach it really because, again, there was no... There's no context. There was no trace. There isn't a trace of what was going on. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it too, like we think when we're sending our children to stay with family, you think that's the safest place to send them. So there's no, it's not like it's, I mean, she had been spending the night with some girl that has a creepy dad, like, or like that's, but when you know that where they've been and you could track it, it's like, well, no reason to worry. She's safe. She's with, yeah. So it it could happen to any one of us if we're we're not. I think the best advice I can give to parents is don't trust anyone anyone can do it even if you think you know them you're you don't really know them yeah and to prepare your child for anyone or anything to happen with anyone yes prepare your child I mean I don't want to I never want to scare my I never wanted to scare my kids but I wanted them to always like Jasmine to this day a stranger danger everywhere she goes (laughs) it's like so you know I but I want you know I want them to be have an awareness about you know the world around them and their environment the problem with stranger danger too is um is we only worry about the strangers Mm-hmm. But again, worry about everyone. Yeah. I, that is, uh, when I become a mother, I will 100% not trust anyone except for my parents and whoever I'm with's parents. And even then, like, it would be yeah. call, text, like, you have to be available. And my parents, especially since they know what I went through, I'm sure when I have kids, they're going to make sure that that does yeah. not happen to them. Yeah. Man, it's so so tough for the all of us parents out there. Um, we're all you know we're walking a fine line, and it's there's just the things that you don't want to have to worry about or think about, and you you know think it would, could never happen to you or your family, and you know, and a lot of times those are the ones that you know it does happen to you because they're the least you know least prepared or the least. Um, and I also too think the conversation around. 
topics like this around sex in general with kids it's so is, taboo is very taboo yeah. parents mm-hmm. have such an i mean i didn't i mean i'm very my kids i don't know why I, i've never felt uncomfortable with my kids talking but i know other maybe because my mom didn't um but most of my friends they get really weirded out by it mm-hmm. and um i think that it, it, it kind of ties in with that a little bit. What do yeah. you think? I, no, I agree. And I have a 10-year-old son. And, you know, when he was younger, I was the same exact way. I did not know how to approach talking to him about these things like body awareness and body boundaries. But, you know, it really, the day and age that we live in, it's so important to talk about these things because, again, you know, what Maddie said, you can't trust the people that you think that are trustworthy. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's very important to have a lot. Parents need to be educated more than now than never. Yeah. Um, I did want to talk about, um, I wanted to go over some statistics. I know, Katera, you pulled some. I pulled some. It's it's kind of confusing online because there's some variation depending on what, what, you're, what study you're reading or what website you're looking at. I, one I found was in 2020 done by a childusa.org, and it kind of was online with um, CDC. But these might be a little outdated. They reported that one in five girls and one in 13 boys are likely to experience childhood sexual abuse by the time they're 18. Yours wasn't quite so many. Right. And mine was from like a, um, a website called healthline.com. It was from April of 2022. More recent. Yeah. More recent. So it said one in nine girls and one in 20 boys under the age of 18 experience sexual abuse or assault. Um, and 82% of all victims under the age of 18 are female. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there is a, it's, I mean, I don't know about you two, but I, I know so many people, mm-hmm. you know, that, yeah. that, that have been through this. So it's way more prevalent than you we'd ever like to imagine. Um, but Maddie's story does have a positive ending, I will say, although I know she's still writing it. Last summer was your wake up call when you uh, sort of said enough and whatever self-destructive behaviors you were still engaging in, you made the decision to walk away from. How has your life, or how is your life different now from the one you were living just a year ago? Well, um, I'm in a completely different headspace, environment. Um, My energy is completely different. Um, Last year was the last year that I abused alcohol and um, drugs as a coping mechanism, and it was the best wake-up call because I quickly realized how broke I was, um, how horrible I felt, and I realized that my house was a mess, and and I had people that I know that wouldn't talk to me again on laying on my floor. And I kind of just looked at everything, and I was like, this is pretty much the representation of my life right Right. now. And I completely felt that. And luckily for me, um, I was able to get get awareness of, like, how – my self-destructive behavior was affecting me and unfortunately for a lot of people they don't they don't see it until later in their life Way later in life way later and I was so lucky to be so self-aware of myself at 19 that I realized okay something needs to change do you attribute that to anything in particular do you attribute it to therapy or um the way you were brought up like what do you attribute that awareness to or do you feel like because i feel like you were you're on an accelerated path that maybe yeah. not everyone's so lucky that you'd be um, on. i've always been since my abuse has started um i felt as if i completely skipped childhood and had to mentally mature 
way faster than most of most kids that I know because I was holding on to such abuse and and um, shame that I kind of skipped what most children would be mentally and kind of already was at the mental level of like a teenager at 10 and so now that I've gone through this and be and, and it's such a horrible experience but in the outcome I've became so much more mature and more self-aware of what my surroundings are now I've completely moved out of my college town uh, that was like the first thing that I needed to do because I was surrounded by people who were into partying and were into drinking and um did not care about their self-destructive behaviors and I kind of realized that I needed to not be a part of their behaviors because it would trigger mine. Uh, After I moved out of Chico and I moved back in with my parents, um, my studies went skyrocket before my grades. I did not care about my grades. Um, I did decent in school, but I could not have possibly cared less about due dates. And when I came home and realized, okay, I need to clean my life up, I started focusing on school more and then I had the energy and the drive and the ambition to do more so I ended up getting a local pizza place job and that was those hours were not enough to feed my hunger for ambition and to do better so I ended up getting a second job mm-hmm. and taking on like I took on I think 15 units in school so on top of that you can see I I kept my life pretty busy to just to not even just distract myself, but to make sure that I am on the path that I needed to be on, mm-hmm. and to stay away and to not even not even just stay away, just to not have time to even engage in things like that, um, which was really helpful. And of course, people cope very differently and do things and they heal very differently. But for me, it was keeping myself busy not letting myself slip back into those cracks and staying on on a routine yeah. and just making sure that I felt good about what I was doing, which was really nice because there, I felt like I was making my parents proud. And they've always been very proud of me, but I felt internally what I was doing was making my parents proud, that I was doing better and that I was taking life more seriously and that I was taking my studies more seriously. And everyone around me could see that my energy has changed from someone who was deeply broken and headed down the wrong path to someone who is responsible and kind and actually cares about others. And now I've, I've, it's been over a year since I have stopped being self-destructive and engaging in those behaviors. And and now I have like a big girl corporate job Mm -hmm. uh, at 20, which is great because now I feel like I'm with people that are at my level uh, mentally and with how serious they are about their work and their career and now I'm taking school more seriously so when it comes when now that school's coming up I'm getting more excited and I'm daydreaming about like what my classes are going to be like what are they going to talk about what things am I going to learn you're going into your senior year right yes yeah okay at um CSUC, California State University, Chico. Is that where you are? No, I go to Butte. Oh, you go to Butte. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's where you were. Okay. That's what, yes, Correction. I go to Butte College, um, which is out in Oroville, so it's still Chico okay, area. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a lot of, and Chico State and Butte College intertwine together. Yeah. So um, I have some classes that are out at Chico State. I have yeah. some that are there. Um, and 
since they work so closely, it's really nice because I, like, when I was going on my journey of, like, figuring out what I wanted to major in, I got to meet so many different professors in different areas. Um, business is something that I really like. I like the logistic aspects of it. I like the math aspect, like, anything that can be put on paper. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're majoring in real estate? I'm majoring in real estate, and I'm Amazing. very excited. Uh, I want to be a mortgage broker. Wow, okay. Yes, I want to be a mortgage broker, a little boss girl moment. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of money to be made. Yes. <laughs> Speaking from experience, well, not me, my husband. <laughs> but um, before we end, I want to, a couple things. I'm, I said I was going to circle back to this, and I didn't. Um, maybe um, you could, but, well, we both you guys can talk about this, but I, I, mm-hmm. I know that Katira, you have heard probably the reasoning behind why more victims don't speak out is their fear of not being believed and that is something i hear all the time too mm-hmm. it what 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 do you what can you say about that because i think that's the one thing that the like if we're talking to someone right now let's just say who's been abused who's being abused what would your advice to them be or and also too, i want to speak to the people who don't understand why somebody wouldn't speak up well, I mean, the thing of it is there's so many resources available now for people to, to be able to speak out. But I think it comes back to, again, what Maddie shared, too, is just, you know, not speaking out for fear that won't be believed, a lot of embarrassment and shame around it, um, and the fact that, you know, I don't want to tell my parents because I might get in trouble. Um, but, you know, my advice would be is, is to not be afraid and just to, to be, you know, honest about your experiences of what has happened because there is so much help out there available um and i think just hearing maddie's story might help a lot of people listening to this understand that you're not going to get in trouble um there's so many people that out there that want to just help people go through this whole process of recovering from this traumatic event that you've experienced um and the, you know therapy is a great resource um you know maddie experience you're having great experience with that um, but yeah, there's just so many different resources available that there's no reason for you not to be able to speak out. Yeah, and then even to offer, like um, we were talking before about, there's like the, there's national hotlines for um, different health crises and stuff. And if you, say you're if you're listening and you are going through this and you don't know who to tell or how to tell them, maybe start with a hotline. Mm-hmm. Would that be good advice? Yeah, yeah. So what I, I know you have probably better information than I do on on what a good number to I don't know like where 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 are the where would you direct them to? Um, so there's the National Sexual Assault Hotline, um, and their number is 1-800-656-4673. And there's also the Nationwide Suicide and Crisis Line, um, and you can either call or text uh, to 988, and it's a 24-7-hour crisis line, and they just have direct access to trained crisis counselors. Um, and they'll provide immediate crisis intervention and support. And Maddie, did you say you used one of those? Yeah, yeah. I used the National Suicide Hotline, the 1-800 number. Mm-hmm. And I used it just so I can, solely so I can vent to someone. And it was helpful. It was so helpful because they didn't even, I, they didn't even require a real name. They mm-hmm. just needed a name so that they can address you personally and they're there to listen that is what they're trained to do is Mm -hmm. they're there to listen and to help counsel you through a crisis it it is not a way um they're not going to go and tell law enforcement unless you are in immediate danger right um they're there to just listen and that is a great first step because you don't even really have to give them a real name you can just tell them 
yeah what is going on and they can help you they can give you um resources Mm -hmm. they can or even just a listening ear like if you just need to tell someone and you know you're not ready to tell people that are immediate to you it's a great way to just get it off your chest and be able to tell someone and feel a little bit of that pressure release and i think it's a really good first step it's like okay i've i've taken this first step and maybe what they could do is provide resources for what the next step you know would be but I feel like it's a great first step and it's a great anonymous first step and you're not calling 911 by the way like Maddie said they're not going to be you know sending law enforcement out um so you can remain anonymous and I think that that's probably the easiest safest way to go um and if you've listened to our previous episodes with Katira you know that she used to work for one of these hotlines so she's got experience with that too um Okay, well, I want to end by thanking both Maddie and Katera for joining us today. Maddie, you are an incredibly brave and strong young woman, and I am so honored that you've chosen our platform to tell your story. Hearing stories like yours is what I believe is going to help take the stigma out of this and allow others to approach issues such as abuse, addiction, and self-harm with uh, curiosity and compassion instead of judgment and criticism, which we're seeing a lot of. I think it's also important for you know, all of us to remember that behaviors like like this don't just happen for no reason. And if there's one goal I have when we tell stories like yours, it is to open the hearts and minds of our listeners to consider the possibility that maybe just maybe we don't have the full story. So thank you both so much for being here. And thanks to everyone listening. That's all for this episode of Humanity Unlocked. Do you have a personal story to share with us? We're all ears. Visit humanityunlockedpodcast.com and send us an inquiry. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a five-star review and hit subscribe to hear weekly episodes of our show.